Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Well, we're in a series on Saturday nights called Developing a Forerunner Culture, and tonight's our third session entitled Commitment to the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what we've been doing in this series that's a little bit uh, uh, different and layered is we've been talking about what does it look like for a house of prayer or really any ministry to have a forerunner culture, because that's so different than even a godly Christian culture. That's so different than even a focused on a mission culture. What does it look like to have a, a forerunner culture where the, the ethos, it's in the DNA, it's, it's sticky, it's part of who we are and what we do and how we think and how we process, how we filter our decisions, that Jesus Christ is coming back to the planet and it's our job to help prepare the way. That's a different thought process. And so as a, uh, as a forerunner ministry, we're going through some of the uh, major pieces of what makes up a forerunner culture. How do you get one? Uh, what does that process look like? And because it's so fitting to talk about not only what one is, but how do we get ours? How do we get here? We've been doing some reminiscing, a little bit of review. We've been talking about where the prayer room started and how and, and messages that were impacting us. And uh, so tonight, as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, half of tonight is reminiscing over how it struck us in the early days. And then the other half, of course, is calling us into this lifestyle. And I'll just give a little disclaimer. You could do, I mean, an endlessly long study or series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about it one night. So we're not even really going to talk about it. We're going to talk about talking about it. So my suggestion to you is, if there's some things tonight that kind of provoke or stir, I want to encourage you to give yourself to a season of studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which of course is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so with all that kind of as a a little bit of backdrop, uh, let's jump in here. Part one, finding the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of an interesting thought process, but I can remember... Back in the living room days of of this ministry, when we were having the prayer meetings in my living room, I can remember us reading the Sermon on the Mount, and it's like we had, like it just got added to the Bible and we just found it, like we just discovered that it was in there. I mean, we'd read it before, everybody'd read the New Testament before, but I don't think any of us knew we'd read the Sermon on the Mount and knew what the Sermon on the Mount was and why it was good and why we should spend time there. And I can remember us finding it and being like, this is great. This is like a gold mine. How did we not know this was there? We just had never really had it advertised to us. And so uh, I've got just a a line or two here out of the intro. I'm going to read because I think I can read it better and I can say it again. It was a group of 20-year-olds who had committed to give ourselves fully to Jesus no matter what it cost us. We were looking for a roadmap of sorts of how to accomplish that. The Sermon on the Mount provided us with that and so much more in this most beautiful and practical way, a roadmap. People that want to give themselves fully to Jesus, what's it look like? In it, we saw how to live out the kingdom of God in our modern context. And also, as we were doing it, we were finding God's smile all over our heart responses. And it's really, really a sweet season for us as a ministry And it's had profound impact in forming the culture, the DNA, the patterns, the policies of this house of prayer. I'm really grateful for it. I gave you just a little excerpt out of Matthew 5. It's kind of a quick read through the Beatitudes. And the reason I've packaged it this way is because I feel like in a Packaged quite just this way, I feel like it really kind of captures what was hitting us. I feel like it was, in in just a couple of phrases broken down, it it strikes what was really uh, happening to us in those days. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
And I put in little parentheses, those that abide by the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to read it that way. Blessed are those that abide by the Sermon on the Mount, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They'll inherit the earth. They will see God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and great is your reward in heaven. As we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, we were just wrecked with this idea that the kingdom of heaven was near, was accessible, and was to, was to be devoted to, dedicated to. We were to give ourselves, and that there was a blessing that rested on it. Blessed are those that choose to live this way. And we were making a decision to live this way. It was something that was striking us. And part of the reason I want to advertise that is if I can just be very blunt, there were many of us in that room that loved God, but we had not committed ourselves to the Sermon on the Mount because we'd never had it really advertised to us as something to commit to. I have a feeling there's some of you in this room that love God and have not yet committed your life to the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to encourage you to go on that journey of what does that even mean? What does that look like? Because that's what was messing with us. That's what was forming this culture in this house of prayer in those early days. Now, I'm going to put the Sermon on the Mount on the side for just a second and just go back to this concept of forerunners. And then we'll tie it in. Forerunners live a submitted life. When I think about who, what, what it takes to be a forerunner. I think that term submitted life is maybe one of the best phrases to describe what is required of a forerunner. You couldn't be a forerunner and not have a submitted life. You could have a submitted life and not be a forerunner, but you could not have, uh, be a forerunner and not have a submitted life. It is essential. And one of the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount is living submitted. So the Sermon on the Mount is almost like a prerequisite for forerunners. It's, a, it's an essential piece of what it means to be a forerunner and live out a forerunner life because forerunners are submitted, and the Sermon on the Mount helps you figure out how to do that in a real practical way. So this entire course that we're doing on a forerunner culture, this theme about a submitted life, it comes up again and again. I mean, it's a common theme, uh, and, and rightly so, one of the reasons being forerunners have to be the most submitted because their lifestyle is so narrow, their calling is so narrow, there's no other way that they could live. There has to be a significant focus and attention and giving over to the submitted life. Just, yes, Lord, a submitted way of living. So forerunners live that way. A forerunner's life is for Christ to do with what he pleases. Forerunners aren't merely alive, they're on mission. It's very different to meet people that love the Lord, that have got a real relationship with God, that go to church every week, that are, that are engaged, that care, and then you take that to another level. They're living with the mission. They could tell you what the mission is, and they're doing the mission, and lots of things about their life are pointing back to that mission. So it's not just random acts of good Christianness. It's on a mission with focus and time and attention and schedule and friendships. Everything all focus on that mission and point to that mission. Forerunners live on mission. And forerunners live and die for the cause that God gave them. Live and die, living for that mission. Dying for that mission, dying in, in all the ways that uh, are death to flesh, dying in all the ways that are death to our own desires. Forerunners live and die for the mission that the Lord gave them. Now, that's a really different, I mean, I'm just thinking about like all the really cool people I've known and gone to church with over the years that loved God. But if you asked them, what's the mission God gave you to live and die for? I think they just kind of look at you funny. They go, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's, that's okay. I'm not mad about that. But forerunners have got a mission, and they are focused, and their life reflects that mission. So that's just a little side point. Now, let's get back to the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason that that has such value is because the Sermon on the Mount really is the container for that lifestyle. You can't live a focused life like I just described 
haphazardly, accidentally. You gotta have some focus and the Sermon on the Mount helps provide all the parameters. It's a good container for that lifestyle. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you just dissect each phrase. You go, oh my gosh, this is gonna be a very uh, uh, restricting way to live. (laughs) And it it winds up fine-tuning all of the the needed uh, aspects of what is required for becoming a forerunner. All right, well, Sermon on the Mount, as we began to study it, we saw over and over that it was calling believers, and I'll, I'll say it was calling us, to an authentic expression of Christianity with a costly and wholehearted pursuit of Jesus. It was calling us to it. We could feel it. And it became clear that it wasn't enough to simply read the Sermon on the Mount, hear the Sermon on the Mount, talk about the Sermon on the Mount. We had to actually figure out how to apply its principles to our daily life. That's very different. It's very different to spend a season of time just devouring a passage of Scripture, in this case, three chapters, where you're going, how do I apply it? How do I make that real? I, I can't think of too many passages of Scripture that are more practical to do that with. I mean, pieces of the epistles, but man, I don't think there's any three chapters anywhere that give you this much meat and potatoes of now do this, apply this, put this into your life, start thinking this way, stop doing this, start doing this. I mean, it's just so practical in a season of time. We spent it as a community. This community, the Prayer Room Missions Base, before we got to 20 hours a day in this building and these blue chairs, We were in a different place with a smaller group, and we were on a mission of devouring the Sermon on the Mount, learning what it looked like, and figuring out how to apply it to our lives. And it was a marking season of time that was beautiful. I will forever be grateful for that season of time for me personally and for this ministry because it completely changed the way that we interacted with each other and with God and the way that we saw the mandate that God gave us. All of that was helped by the Sermon on the Mount. He gave you this verse out of Matthew 5.19, because Jesus just said it. Right in the middle of his sermon, he's given all these ideas, and he says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, but you can't just hear it. You actually got to put it into practice. You got to practice this stuff and then rope your friends into it too. He said, this is important. He said, this is how you become great in the kingdom of God. You take the Sermon on the Mount and you apply it. You actually put the concepts into practice. Well, for us, there was a little bit of a chip on our shoulder in those days, and I probably was the reason that anyone was chippy. There was a, this, just, we were disgusted by the idea of living the typical soft American Christianity sort of life. It was just a disgusting thought. That we would live just this, just this, just easy go, flippant version of Christianity and just kind of show up to church events and just kind of be around it. It was a disgusting thought to us. There was, there was this idea of what's the antidote to the soft life. And I just tell you, uh, with a little bit of perspective, having spent some time in the mission field in a third world country that doesn't have anything we have, we live so soft. <laughs> like it's the, this is the easiest place in the world to live. This is, it's really easy. And what that means is, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy those comforts. It just means you can't let those comforts soften your version of Christianity. You can't let them invade. You can't let them take over and, and change your, your perspective and your inner life in God. You've got to continually fight against the trend and the, the, the river that will suck you in. I'll give you just a little for instance. There are things that we have that we get to experience and be blessed by every day that if we're not careful, we'll complain aren't a little better while the majority of the earth has never experienced the worst version of it. And we have it every day. Good food, electricity, clean water, not feared for, fearing for our life. <laughs> I mean, 
The majority of the earth has it way rougher. And so then we go, ah, this food isn't good enough. And entitlement settles in. Instead of going, Lord, thank you so much for this food that I don't really like. We've got entitlement about it and go, ooh, this food isn't good enough. When the majority of the earth would die for that horrible cheeseburger or whatever it is that we're complaining about. That's what I mean. It's like we get so entitled, we get so wrapped up. So I don't mean that you can't have the cheeseburger. I mean, have the cheeseburger and enjoy it even when it's a bad one. And thank the Lord for that bad cheeseburger and have some perspective and that in every area. Our homes, our worst home is better than the majority of the earth's living conditions. Our worst car, our worst, I mean, it's, this is the thought process. It's like, oh my gosh, we just have no grid for how good we have it. And the Sermon on the Mount became a very real antidote to the soft life. Because the Sermon on the Mount is no respecter of uh, national borders or time or culture. Sermon on the Mount says, wherever you are, whoever you are, whenever you are, live this way. Live restrained. Live focused. Live committed. Live holy. And we saw the Sermon on the Mount as our way out. We didn't have to leave America to leave soft American Christianity. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. We go, if we'll actually do this, we'll live radically. Like, if we would actually live these things out, I don't mean talk about them. I don't mean have the verses memorized. I mean, if we'll actually do them, and then after we've been doing them for a while, reassess and go, you know what? I've actually just been playing. I really need to go deeper. And then after a while, go even deeper. And after a while, go even deeper, because you never graduate from these things. We saw the answer to the soft American life. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we went, if we get serious about this, we really do this. We'll have like a real life in God. We'll live, we'll live holy lives. We'll be living radically. We'll be living on the edge here. I mean, this will be really incredible. And, and we were right. It did it. It actually shifted us. And I just give you Matthew 7, 13 through 14. If you can't tell, most of the verses tonight, they're out of the Sermon on the Mount because that's what we're looking at. Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We were looking at verses like this and understanding the layered meaning, going beyond just getting saved and staying saved. We were looking at this and going, there's a narrow way to live as a Christian that we can either choose to live or because we've got free will, we can actually in any particular moment go, you know what, I want the soft version of life. I'd rather live this way instead of that. But we were looking at going, no, this is a call to the narrow life. This is a call to a focused, intentional way to live where there's real consequences. And we really recognized it. The Sermon on the Mount in so many ways became our manifesto. This little rowdy group of 20-year-olds that didn't know anything in a living room, house of prayer, wasn't even a real place, didn't have a real location, we didn't even have a website. We were just this rowdy group of 20-year-olds. The Sermon on the Mount became the drumbeat. It became our manifesto. This is how we're going to live. We're going to do this, and we're going to let this be expressed in our marriages. We're going to let this be expressed in discipleship. We're going to let this be expressed in the way we build the house of prayer, in the way we interact with each other, in the way that we esteem the mission that God gave us. We're going to let this thing be a filter for us. And it was beautiful. It was, it was shifting our culture because up till that point, this group of 20-year-olds had not yet been pressed on so many of those different issues, so many of those different points, so many of those different lifestyle choices that are presented and so verses like, not just this one, but I mean, all of them jumped out at us. But Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We were going, how do we, how do we continue to participate in the economic system while not letting the economic system decide who we are what we do, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. 
How do we not love money yet still operate with it? And the Sermon on the Mount actually helps define how you do that, how you live that out. But we were seeing verses like this in the Sermon on the Mount, and we were going, we're going, this is how we're going to live. We're going to live counterculture. Because I can't think of anything more counterculture in America, I'll even say within the church in America, than don't love money. Let me just tell you what love of money looks like related to your Christian walk. Love of money is keeping you at that job and keeping you from experiencing the other things in this season of time that the Lord actually wants you to do. Oh, I can't be at church. I've got to work. Oh, I can't be at this. I've got, I've got extra work i got to do tonight. But see, what's actually happening is there's a prioritization of money over the family of God. Money over that growth that would be occurring by being in a partnership with the rest of the body of Christ and doing so. There's this, there's, there's this shift and see, that's where it was starting to strike us. We're going, you know what? I'll take a lesser job and spend more time with these crazies. I'll, take, I'll get less money and I'll figure out, in fact, I'm gonna give more money away. That's another way I'm gonna combat that covetousness. I'm gonna give money away instead of trying to save every dollar. I'm gonna look for ways to give money away. We started to go after things like this. I'm not talking only about the money issue, but that's the one in this verse. We started to look at life and go, how do we live it backwards? How do we live it upside down? How do we live it according to the Sermon on the Mount? Because we were finding the Sermon on the Mount was confronting nearly everything we thought was normal. Everything that we thought was okay, that we'd been growing up in different Sunday school environments and churches or whatever, <coughs> believing certain things because they were passed on to us, but they were not according to the Sermon on the Mount. We were confronted with it and going, this is actually not the way we're supposed to be living. And the Sermon on the Mount was highlighting that, was exposing it. <laughs> we jumped into the funnest, wildest, messiest season of experiments. We were trying to figure out how to do this, and I'll just tell you, you don't know how to do something the first time you try. You gotta figure that thing out. I, I have yet to meet somebody who got on a bike and figured it out the first second. They fell down, scraped their knees at least once. It takes a minute to figure this thing out. And so you got all these 20-year-olds that are brand new at all of these ideas, are idealistic as all get out, and have absolutely no idea the way forward except they know it's not what they've done, but they don't know what it looks like moving forward. And so everybody is trying stuff trying to figure out how do we pray, how do we fast, how do we give, how do we forgive, how do we, I just love the, this one. This, this is just one of those great little uh, moments that was confronting us, and, and there were so many like it. Look at this, Matthew 5, 16, and then 6, 1. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. And then Matthew 6, 1. Same sermon on the mount, a few verses later. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Hey, wait a minute. He just said, do stuff in front of people that they'd praise God. Now you're like, now don't do stuff in front of people so that they know you did it. Like, oh my gosh, Lord, what does this look like? And we had to go on the journey of figuring out, okay, well, how, how do I hold my heart in this situation? How do I do the right thing with the right motives instead of the right thing with the wrong motives? Or, or I, I've got the right motives, but I did the wrong thing. And we went on this journey of trying to, I mean, everybody was experimenting. It felt like a science lab in there. Everything was blowing up. <laughs> Everybody's trying, and then we're sharing notes. And people are going, okay, well, I tried this. And it's like, oh, I don't want to talk about it because if I talk about it, I might lose my treasures in heaven. It was like, okay, well, man, I got to forgive that guy because I'm irritated at them right now. And, and you know, I mean, it was just... It was messy. It was so messy. As we were trying to figure this thing out, it was awesome. I just feel like the Lord was love. He was just loving it, like smiling at that living room and this little conglomerate of 20-year-olds who were trying to figure this out. And we didn't know we were forming a forerunner culture. We didn't have the presence of mind in those experiments to understand what we were actually doing was forming the foundations of the prayer room mission space and the mission of the prayer room mission space. But that's what actually was happening. I'll tell you what happened, though. Out of those experiments, out of all that that was going on, some sober life commitments were made. 
I mean some powerful things that some of them have lasted to this day for many of us. I mean, there were some sober life commitments made. We were all reading the Sermon on the Mount and talking about it regularly. I don't mean it was like we had a reading plan. It was like, everybody read the Sermon on the Mount. No one needed to be told to. We were all doing it because it was, it was what was going on in the community. It was what we were talking about. It was, it was in the water. And so there was constant conversation about the Sermon on the Mount. And we were all, I mean, I want to say all of us in that season of time, we were making radical commitments to live according to the Sermon on the Mount as best as we could figure, as best as our experiments would uh, permit. We were making commitments to live radically committed to the Sermon on the Mount. It was the kind of thing that we were talking about. There were conversations about, I'm going to give myself to this. I'm, I'm going to live this way. We were putting significant points in, uh, into place to help us to actually walk this thing out. I can remember when accountability partners came into the, uh, into the conversation, and, and we were talking about accountability partners specifically that we made a promise to one another, I'll come to you and I'll repent when I do something dumb. So now there became a culture of, of uh, repentance on the regular, where, where there were things that typically had just been left and had just kind of stayed in the darkness, stayed in the, in the shadows. Now there were these accountability partners where we were committing to each other. And hey, listen, if I do this, I'm going to come and I'm going to repent. I'm going to ask your forgiveness. I want you to pray with me. And, and that was a beautiful thing that started happening. In that same season of time, we signed the IHOP KC Purity Covenant in order to stay out of sexual trouble. That was another beautiful injection in the season of us giving ourselves to the Sermon on the Mount is here we're signing this commitment about a, a commitment to not view pornography, a commitment to repent every time we do, a commitment to not have any, you know, uh, relationships that we shouldn't. And if there was ever any even touch of, of that repentance to, to our accountability partner, this was such good, healthy injection into our culture. And so even to this day, our staff signs that same purity commitment. I mean, here it is you know, however many years later, and that's become part of who we are because it was forming in a living room because we were forming a, a forerunner culture. We just weren't completely clear that that's what we were doing, but we got serious about this. And part of the reason I want to say that to you is I want to say the statement again. I think there's many of you in this room that love the Lord, but the idea of making a commitment to live according to the Sermon on the Mount is not one you've ever really thought quite that phrase too. You never, you've never said that phrase aloud. Lord, I commit to live the Sermon on the Mount. To, I commit to this lifestyle. It's probably something that many of you have just never thought to do. I want to encourage you, think to do it. I want to encourage you, live that way. Give yourself to a season of, of study and dialogue. What does the Sermon on the Mount say? Because this is really what formed us. And I will tell you, it is a very reproducible model. I would believe that any group of people that would give themselves to a season of studying the Sermon on the Mount, you would get the exact same result that we did if there was a commitment to do it, not just read it. Well, here's a, and then for some, just last little plug there before I move on to next part. Some of you, it's been a while since you've kind of had a refresher on the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, yeah, I'm familiar with it, but it's maybe been a while. Find it fresh again. Just dive in like you've never seen it before. Just give yourself a, another season, a reboot. I'm going to dive back into the Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> with fresh eyes, asking the Holy Spirit to help me to know how to apply these things and make them real in my life. If you'll do that, you will find vitality in your relationship with Jesus. If you'll do that, you will find your heart beating hard again for Jesus. You will awaken. That, this is a great awaken your soul sort of a passage. Give yourself to the Sermon on the Mount. Again, it's not read it. That's not what I'm talking about. Go as fast as you can or as slow as is needed to actually apply and implement what you're reading. The objective is 100% implementation, not I read it 50 times. So go as fast or as slow as is necessary in order to implement it in a way that you feel it pinching. You feel the pressure. You feel the joy. You feel the pleasure of the Lord on it. Well, another thing that we found is that Sermon on the Mount 
was actually advertising real Christianity. And we were, we were kind of looking at it going, this is the version of Christianity that's in the Bible. We, we kind of made up a different one. What is, uh, what is going on here? I just read you Matthew 5, 1 through 2. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And the point is, Jesus said, uh, in Matthew 5, 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. What did he teach them? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught this sermon like on the fly to just normal people. This is supposed to be the most normal version of Christianity. This isn't like, you know, excelled version. This isn't, you know, you've mastered everything and now it's time for the Sermon on the Mount. This is like the most basic version of Christianity. He just starts spouting out this sermon on a hillside to some, to some crowds of people. He's like, hey, by the way, this should be normal. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. As we were reading it, we were kind of confronting a false paradigm. What's that first, uh, that uh, false paradigm? When we use the term Sermon on the Mount Christianity, that term is actually an accusation. It's an accusation that confronts the unfortunate reality that there is an alternative form of Christianity. To say Sermon on the Mount Christianity is a confrontation to the fact that there's another version. <laughs> How did there get to be another version? Well-meaning people, but not Bible adherence and Bible application. There's no other version of Christianity. This is the only version. It's supposed to be the normal thing, for the masses on the hillside. But what we found here is that the, the popular set of guidelines that have been put into place that are not adhering to Sermon on the Mount Christianity, they are not adhering to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, they have become the permissive norm that governs the church in our culture. They are the permissive norm. I don't mean they are loudly spoken on a microphone. I don't mean that there's an alternative version of the Sermon on the Mount that is also three chapters long of sermon notes and it's preached and that people adhere to that. It's the silent permissive norm because no one is calling their brother and their sister out on not doing the Sermon on the Mount. See, that's the problem. The Sermon on the Mount should be the standard for Christianity. So when we see a brother or a sister not doing that, we should be going, hey, come up higher. Let's, let's adhere to what the Word of God says. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount is a different Bible than the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount is part of the Bible, and it's an essential part. But there has become a permissive norm of what it means to be a Christian in American culture that is completely outside the boundary lines of what the Sermon on the Mount teaches. It's completely different. And we were seeing that and going, oh my gosh, this is like, I feel like we're getting saved all over again. This is, whoa, what is happening? We were having a revelation really of our own fallen state and the depravity of what the culture around us has propped up that is not what the Bible teaches. Here's a great for instance. Our culture believes that everyone who says they're a Christian is going to heaven. That's not what the word teaches. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus, these are the words of Jesus, the kindest person who's ever lived. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will? Churchgoers? People that worship really loud? Who will go to heaven? Only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Oh my gosh, they didn't teach us this in Sunday school. I thought if you went to church, you said, you know, you loved God, you prayed at meals, you like, you tried to, you know, kind of read the Bible a little bit. I, I thought that meant you were a Christian. He says, no. He says, there's only one type of human that will go to heaven. 
the one that does the will of my father. Now, that means all of us Americans that have mostly never given one thought to what is the father's will, we're mostly thinking, what is my will? I want my will. I want to live my will. And we've never given a thought to what is the father's will. We need to take a giant pivot. Because Jesus says there's only one version of a Christian that goes to heaven. It's the one that does the will of his father. Meaning, we better figure out what the father's will is. Because if all we know is our will, if that's the only will we know, we're probably on a bad path. And it was striking us. We were going, oh my gosh, this is, this is real Christianity. The only one that goes to heaven is the one that does the will of the father. It doesn't matter if you say you love, you love Jesus. It doesn't matter if you say you're a Christian. There's only one version going to heaven. Oh my gosh, this is troubling. And I was like, I can remember in that season of time, this verse and ones like it, they were troubling because we're going, oh my goodness, there's so many people I know that don't do that. There's so many people. They don't, they don't do that. Like by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, Lord, this is challenging. We were finding in the Sermon on the Mount many basic principles about the kingdom. The, the Sermon on the Mount, if you just want kind of a quick little menu, this isn't everything. This is, we're doing like an intro to an intro. But it teaches us to align with godly attitudes. Sermon on the Mount really helps with that, to align with godly attitudes. <clears throat> to get a kingdom perspective to learn how to navigate our social interactions. There is so much about our social interactions that God really cares about. The Sermon on the Mount helps with that. To understand the Lord's Prayer, that's a really big deal. I'm not gonna go into it right now, it's a big deal. How to manage our private life before God. Sermon on the Mount helps us to make our life about building his kingdom and not building ours. The Sermon on the Mount helps us to not focus on our own self, on our own life, but instead to focus on building the kingdom. It confronts the sins of worry and doubt. There is so much worry and doubt, and we pat each other on the back and high-five one another. And the Sermon on the Mount calls it out and says, there is no place for worry and doubt. It's to help us. Sermon on the Mount helps us to see the nature of God and then to reach to be like him. To see God's nature and to reach to be more like him. Also, even helps us to know how to identify false believers in the church. Sermon on the Mount really helps. It's a sheep and goats, sort of a separating sort of a deal. Sermon on the Mount really helps us to define what's real and what's not. It was Jesus' message to the crowds. I just, I can't express enough how big of a deal that is, that he wasn't teaching this to the elite school of the apostles. He just said, oh, there's a bunch of crowds. Let's teach them the stuff that matters most. Let's teach them the most basic stuff. Because when you see crowds, you don't go double deep. When you see crowds, you go basic surface level. And he's like, here's basic surface level, Sermon on the Mount. Oh my gosh, this sermon is made for the brand new believer, not the one that's been going to seminary. This sermon is made for the one that just gave their life to the Lord. They're young in age. They're young in, uh, in their maturity in Christ, <clears throat> as well as the ones that are older in age and, or older in Christ. This is, it, everybody, this is like the, who's out there in the crowd? Everybody, a mix of everybody goes, oh, good. Let's do the most entry-level teaching so that everybody can get what is most important. And he taught the crowds. We are talking about Christianity 101. The Sermon on the Mount is the beginning. So just as a little point of advertisement, if somebody comes to know the Lord, you've ministered to somebody, you brought them to Jesus, and you're looking for where to get them started, Get them to devour the Sermon on the Mount and tell them normal Christians do all this stuff. And then just leave them. Say it's normal to do this. Read this a bunch of times and then do it all. And make sure to do it all. And after you haven't done it all, do it all. And this is normal Christianity. They will be awesome in just a minute. I mean, they will be just fine. It's normal Christianity. Christianity for newbies and oldies. Both of them. 
It's a declaration of the culture of the kingdom of God. I, I just, I want to talk about this for a minute. <clears throat> Jesus comes in and he's establishing a new kingdom. So don't think kingdom of God. Think like you got the Roman kingdom, if you will. And then you got this strange man that multiplies, you know, water into wine and bread and fish and stuff and gets coins out of fish's mouths in the water. He's just this interesting new king guy. And he comes from a different land. He comes from over there from a different kingdom. But just think for the moment of a natural kingdom, okay? And he's coming into Rome and he goes, hey, I'm going to take over. Let me tell you about the kingdom from where I come. Let me tell you about how we do it. And then the Romans would go, well, in Rome, we got swords and, and uh, you know, centurions and, and uh, we got a tax collecting system and, and our kingdom, you know, operates like this and <clears throat> we do this and we wear these funny clothes and, and uh, these helmets. I mean, this is how we operate. This is what it means to be Roman. And Jesus goes, okay, cool, cool. Let me tell you about the kingdom that I represent because I'm trying to get all of you to become citizens of my kingdom. It's Jesus' declaration of a different kingdom. Look how many times Jesus talks about the subject of the kingdom straight on using the term kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are, Matthew 5, 19. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He said, I'm declaring my kingdom. I'm telling you how it operates. Matthew 6, 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus saying we're trying to set up a different order here, a different shop. Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, this is Jesus, <clears throat> and you just imagine for those that didn't quite understand he was the son of God, which was like everybody, he's talking about this kingdom, and they're like, this guy is a little weird. He's not in charge of a kingdom. He didn't come into town with an entourage of armies and you know soldiers and horses and all that. Who is this guy? And why does he keep talking about this other kingdom? And he says, no, no, actually, my kingdom is a much bigger deal. And I'm announcing to you how to abide by it. I am telling you how to live this way, to be a part of it, to be able to experience the benefits of it. <clears throat> if you live according to the ways that I prescribe that this kingdom operates, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you'll have no place in this kingdom. It's Jesus declaring a kingdom. Sermon on the Mount should be the universal standard for Christianity, to unite us together in what matters to get us to live godly lives together. The Sermon on the Mount is intended to be a unifier for the body of Christ that we would have the most important things all together at the same time. And then we can work out all the other details. Lastly, I want to give you on this idea of what this introduction of this kingdom is, is the Sermon on the Mount is the true test of authentic ministry impact. So let me just give you a for instance. You got Ministry A over here, and they are awesome, and everybody likes them, and they have got so many things going on that are really, really cool, but it doesn't produce people living according to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I'm going to call you least. No, 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 we're cool. <laughs> We've got so much going on. Like, We've got all these, we've got all the boxes checked. We're, we're like, this is, we're really awesome ministry. Not to me, you're not. If what you're doing isn't producing the Sermon on the Mount, living according to it, practicing these things, and teaching others to obey them, it says you will be called least in the kingdom. Oh my gosh. Okay, now you got another ministry. They're ugly and dumb and small. Unknown and weird. And what they're doing looks pithy. It looks despisable. And people are like, I don't know what that is. I don't really care. I can't really get behind that. But it produces people living according to the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount and the principles that Jesus laid out. Jesus says, I call you great in the kingdom of heaven. See, it's an upside-down kingdom. We live in a culture 
that is really focused on what it looks like and not on what it produces. Jesus says the litmus test for your ministry is does it produce Sermon on the Mount Christianity? Well, what are some of the core messages of the Sermon on the Mount? We don't want to miss this point because <laughs> as, as a simple summary, <clears throat> Jesus tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he more or less says this, hey, I just said a bunch of good stuff. I hope you were listening. Now, do it. Apply this stuff. Take what I've told you and reach to apply it. Let's go into Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. It's the top of page 5. We're going to read this passage. <clears throat> Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, what words of mine? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's at the end of Matthew 7. He's just finished the Sermon on the Mount. This is his wrap-up. This is his conclusion. So if any preacher ever has a conclusion part, they, they ripped off Jesus. Like, he did this. He had a wrap-up on his message. He said, if anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, they're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. The streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus lays this out. He says, listen, I just gave you three chapters of gold. Do it. Live it. Apply it. Actually live the Sermon on the Mount. And if you do, you'll be called wise. You'll be like a wise builder. And that wisdom will actually serve you well. It's not just that you'll be called wise by heaven. On earth, in life, you will be served in really, really good ways because you will be unshakable by the difficulties that are going to come. He says, however, if you hear these words and you ignore them, you do not seek to put them into practice. You are a foolish person and you will suffer great consequences by ignoring these teachings. It's not enough to hear them. They must be applied. So let's just look at it. What defines a fool or a wise man, Jesus said, is Sermon on the Mount, just do it. If you actually do it, you're wise. If you don't do it, you're a dum-dum. So it's real simple. It says the fool is the one that hears it. They might even reply with amen, 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 that's good. But amen, that's good is not the same as amen, I'm doing it. Amen, I'll die trying to do it. I, this is so hard. I'm having a difficult time. I'm not doing it so well, but I care that I'm not doing so well. I'm trying, and I'm going to die trying to do it. The Lord looks at that and goes, oh, that's good. That's real good. A weak person reaching for God, that's good. That, that counts big time. It's the one that hears it and goes, <clears throat> I like hearing it. It's a warm fuzzy, but I am not going to do it on Monday. <laughs> I am not putting this thing into practice. <clears throat> He says, that's a fool. Putting things into practice, you gotta actually do it. It's making alliances with the kingdom of God and its principles over and above our own life goals. I cannot tell you how many times the Sermon on the Mount has gotten in my way. I've got a life goal, one of which is always eating, not sometimes not eating, it's a life goal of mine to always eat. And the Lord's like, no, you got to fast. That means I can't meet my life goal. Lord's like, yeah, good for you. It wasn't about you anyway. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to realign our allegiance, not to self, but to kingdom. 
It's to align us. It's to get us thinking differently that we would be people that live for the kingdom of God instead of living for self. But I'll tell you what, that is a tough one because we are so used to what do I want, what benefits me, what is mine, what is ours that I would like for us to collectively keep because I'm part of us. We are so self-focused. And the Sermon on the Mount tips that thing upside down. And says, no, that's not how I want you to live. I want you to live kingdom focused. In fact, if you live kingdom focused, I'll take care of all your stuff. I'll actually give you all the stuff that you need and some of the stuff you want. It's going to be really cool. I just don't want you living your life for you. I want you living your life for the kingdom. Someone on the Mount is trying. But look what it says. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. The rock is the Sermon on the Mount in this particular instance. Jesus is saying, you built your life according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, so when hard times come, you could call it rain, streams, and winds beating against your life, against your objectives, against your family, against your mind, against your soul. He says, when those things come, you'll be fine. Because you built your life on the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount instead of all the faulty foundation. Friends, as we enter into darker times, the church in America is going to get a rude awakening because there's been so much built on a very unsolid foundation. And Jesus said it. I mean, in many ways, Jesus was prophesying to Americans in 2023. I mean, in many ways. Like, when tougher times are coming... If your foundation isn't on the, on the solid words that Jesus gave as the way to build our life and order our schedule, order our priorities, to take ourselves and our desires out of the equation, out of the equation and lift those desires to the Lord, say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart instead of all of us trying to be in the rat race fighting for our desires to be made i will make that desire of mine happen i will fight i will do whatever it takes to get that desire i will sacrifice the sermon on the mount in order to get that desire met cuz i want it jesus is like that's so backwards that's not it if you will live according to the sermon on the mount you will be steadfast you will be good to go there's massive consequences for living out of sync with the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to give you a few verses that are challenging. These are, these are hard verses to read and to, to process. So we just said if you embrace the Sermon on the Mount, your life will be stable. You'll be okay. You'll be steadfast, even with winds and rains and things beating you. He says, but there's consequences for living out of sync. Let me just read you a few of the consequences. Matthew 5, 13, top of page 6. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is talking about the reality of living according to these principles, giving ourselves to it, and the consequences of what happens. Like, I made you the salt of the earth. You can't operate a different way, you'll be useless. And there'll be significant consequences for that. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is, this is Jesus saying, look, there's actually some significant rewards in heaven resting on this. Of you applying the Sermon on the Mount, rightly. You applying the Sermon on the Mount and you live it now. And if you don't, if you live out of sync with that, there's going to be consequences for that. Matthew 6, 15, if you do not forgive others their sins, I just got to stop there. There is so much unforgiveness in our culture. It is one of the most celebrated things. Vengeance is mine, not the Lord's. It is one of the most celebrated things, even within the church. That person did you dirty, let's go pop their tires. That person did you dirty, we're all going to give them the cold shoulder this week. That person did you wrong? Oh, man, they're my enemy now, too. It is such a normal thing. It is so normal for someone to slander another person and for us to listen and just nod. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Bad. 
the root of it is unforgiveness. Let me read the verse because it's really important we understand what Jesus, who knows the Father really well, what Jesus says about unforgiveness. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. This is real consequence for living out of sync with the Holy Spirit and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. There's real consequences for not doing this, for living out of sync with the Holy Spirit and with the Sermon on the Mount. There's real consequences. This stuff was messing us up. It was taking us for a ride. I can remember that community of 20-year-olds, we're reading this stuff, and it was like Christianity just became brand new. Like, whoa, we just read the real deal version of what real Christianity is. And, and we had to confront all these false ideas that we'd, we'd been accustomed to. I don't know that we'd ever been taught them from a microphone. We'd become accustomed to well, our leaders slander people, so I guess it's normal for slander to be a part of Christianity. Well, it's, it's normal for most of the people in the church to not tithe, so I guess just it's normal to not tithe. I mean, it's just, we were just so used to these things, but we're looking at the Word, and we're seeing the Sermon on the Mount popping out at us. We're going, oh my gosh, this is, this is really, really intense, and it was really good for us, and it formed a forerunner culture. We are who we are because of the journey that we went on together back in a living room, studying the Sermon on the Mount and trying to practice it. Wrapping up, this life isn't ours anymore. The Sermon on the Mount just, you can't read it and apply it if you're still trying to hang on to your life. You kind of have to just go ahead and like end it. You just go, okay, I'm done, I'm over. My, my life is now over because you can't hold these two in tension, okay? It's holding a rabid dog in one hand that's just angry and hungry and a sweet little bunny in the other hand. You just can't do it. That is not going to go well for the bunny. You can't hold these two things. You can't hold on to your life and try to do the Sermon on the Mount. They are in complete opposition. You just have to go ahead and die. And here's what Galatians says. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. I still live, but it's not me. It's now Christ in me for Christ's purposes, according to Christ's ways, according to his desires and his kingdom principles, it's, that's the way to do the Sermon on the Mount. It's the only way. One of the things I want to give you that I, I want to encourage you with as a way to be able to speak to your friends and speak to your own soul, there is not a single Bible verse that applauds living for yourself. We live in a church culture that is very much trying to live for self, yet there's not one Bible verse that says do that. There's a ton that say don't do that. There's a ton that say trust God, trust God's ways, trust what God thinks is better, trust God's Bible. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him. There's not one Bible verse that says, oh good, live for yourself. That's good. Yeah, you came to Christ. Good, good job. Now completely live for yourself and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it. It's not one Bible verse. We're to lay down our life and to follow him. And this is, the, I just want to stress again, the Sermon on the Mount tells you how. It's the most practical, helpful instruction manual. If you'll take it at face value. It says do stuff. And you go, oh man, I, that's some stuff. That's some hard stuff. And you go, God, help me to do the stuff you say in the Sermon on the Mount is a good idea because it was you that said it. Help me to do it. Then the Sermon on the Mount says, don't do stuff. It says there's some stuff you need to not do. 
You go, oh, but I really want to do that stuff. You go, oh, Lord, help me. Give me grace. Give me power that I could not do the stuff. The Sermon on the Mount says don't do. And that I could do the stuff. The Sermon on the Mount says do do. I just, oh, the Lord would give you grace. If you'll press in, it's instructions. This is an instruction manual. The reason I'm tying it in with I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, because as soon as you say yes to that, your first question is, now what? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Now what do I do? What is my life supposed to look like? What do I do now? The Sermon on the Mount will tell you step by step, layer by layer, what to do and what to stop doing. It is an incredible practical instruction manual for those that are paying attention. Just going to leave you with this. No, I got to give you one more. One more and then I'll leave you. Part D, page seven, the way we began. This idea of a committed life, a submitted life, a sacrificial life. Some of this was in the DNA from day one for us. I don't often tell this part of the story here at the prayer room, but it's a really beautiful part of our prophetic history. You guys have heard me say before, the Lord told me to start a daily prayer meeting tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. and don't stop until I come back. That was what he told me. And we started the next morning. Well, when the Lord told me that, you know, I'm just a dude like everybody else. I really was like, whoa, what just, Lord, that's a lot. I mean, I wasn't praying every morning seven days a week until the second coming yesterday. So now to do that is like abrupt and challenging and it's a really, really big ask. I was like, man, so much of what I thought my life was gonna be about is like over in one moment. It's just executed. It's like so much about my schedule and my life and I'm just like, oh Lord, it was really challenging. And so I said yes, but in my heart I was going, Lord, I'm saying yes, this is really, really costly. Like, dang, seven days a week, people over at the house every day dirtying my dishes and my toilet. Oh, gosh, this is, this is a lot. Like, this is a lot, Lord. And as I was processing that, I was carrying that. I mean, I'd said yes. I wasn't backing off of the yes, but that didn't mean that I'd had all this resolved in my heart. That night after I'd made some phone calls and sent out some emails and people were saying, okay, I'll be there tomorrow for the prayer meeting thing. That night I'm sitting on the couch. I can remember, I remember right where I was sitting. And uh, it was the dream couch for those of you guys who can remember back in the day. And I was reading the Bible and uh, in those days uh, I was doing a read through through uh, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And I'd read a few chapters every night kind of thing. And so I'd pick up wherever it is I left off the night before. Well, the night before I had left off in 2 Samuel chapter 23, meaning I'm going to start this night, 2 Samuel chapter 24, okay? Just so that you know where I was. It was the perfect passage. It was a passage that the Lord, he had this whole thing planned out a long, long time ago because he knew where I'd be in my read through right on the day that he spoke what he spoke. As I'm kind of distracted, I'm reading 2 Samuel chapter 24, but really, my head is, oh, God, what have I said yes to? What are we going to do tomorrow? Oh, prayer meetings every day till the second coming. Like, oh, this is really intense. That's really where my headspace is. And I read these phrases, these verses out of 2 Samuel chapter 24. It says this. On that day, Gad went to David and he said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor 
and the oxen and built the altar of the Lord, and there he sacrificed, and the Lord answered his prayers. When I read this, I felt like God had sent an angel and was talking to me as loudly. It felt just that loud. <laughs> I don't know that an angel would have been louder. I read this and I went, oh my gosh, this is our costly gift we get to give you. It is costly. It is. There's no denying it. But instead of being fearful of that cost, we embrace it. We run right into it and we say, the submitted life. God, you gave us this calling. You gave the prayer room missions base this calling. 24-7 prayer. God, we're doing 20. We'll get to 24 as soon as we've got enough grace to pull it off. God, give us grace to pull it off. Help us to do it. We're living the submitted life. It's a costly lifestyle. It's a costly offering. Costly sacrifice. And from the very beginning, the Lord demanded it. He said, I want you to give me a costly gift. But see, that's what foreigners do. They live a submitted life. They live on mission, whatever that mission is. They live on mission, and they're thinking about the things that they're doing are connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of this ties in to the Sermon on the Mount and the way that the Lord has led us from the very beginning about giving us a culture, giving us, giving us the, the boundary lines. What's too far right for us? What's too far left for us? What's too high, we shouldn't even try to make that happen. What's so low? The Lord gave us directions. and He gave us parameters that helped become the container for forerunners to be forged in this house of prayer. The Lord has given us a forerunner culture, I mean, dynamically related to the Sermon on the Mount. Worship leader, you can come on up. Here's my hope tonight. I want you to see how, I want you to start paying attention as you kind of give a little review because, you know, now that it's been advertised, more than likely a bunch of you are going to read the Sermon on the Mount this week. I just bet. I want you to start to think about things that are happening around the prayer room that are related to the Sermon on the Mount that you never thought of before. Oh, wow, that's why we do that. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, then that's why they say it that way. Oh, that's, okay. There's so much about the Sermon on the Mount that has impacted the, the culture and the, the processes of this house of prayer. And I'm just so grateful for it. That's the first point. Second, go on the journey or go, it on, go on it again of committing to the Sermon on the Mount as a real lifestyle. Not as words on a page, not to get the merit badge that you memorized it. Don't memorize it. Live it. Figure out a way to apply it to your life. Figure out a way to actually live the Sermon on the Mount. In this season, give yourself to it afresh. For some of you, are like, afresh? I never did this before. I mean, I, I've read these verses, but I didn't ever think of it as like a marching orders. I didn't ever think of it as like a charge of the way I was supposed to live. Start thinking of it that way and give yourself to it. You will be blessed. You will be so blessed. And you will be stable in dark times. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.